don't need to be the expert that does it all. And far too often, I see small businesses trying to save funds by doing it on their own or not doing it all and just kind of burying their head in the sand like an ostrich. And then it's so much more expensive to fix a problem after the fact than it is to just, again, get informed up front or hire other people up front and do it right from the start. And that all comes down also to projecting what you need, projecting what your runway is, projecting different alternatives, and making sure you ask for that support. Hashtag Choose to Challenge. That's the campaign for 2021 International Women's Day. This campaign does not stop on March 8th. We continue to choose to challenge and call out gender bias and inequality. In this show, Her CEO Journey, we challenge you, mission-driven women entrepreneurs, to take control of your business finances. We challenge you to level up your financial knowledge so you can create financial equality for yourself your family, community, and our world through your business for good. Financial knowledge comes in many forms. The knowledge of the different types of raising capital is one of them. Having the right financial knowledge means that you can choose what is the best capital strategy for you, for your type of business, and the stage of your business. One of the ways of raising capital is equity crowdfunding, which is an online capital raising process through which businesses receive small contribution from many investors in exchange for giving investors a stake in the company. These investors can come from your community, customers, friends, and family, average wealthy individual like us. We continue with our journey in this equity crowdfunding podcast series. The goal of this series is to give you insight into this type of capital raising from different angles. Today's episode is the third part of the series, and we are reviewing the legal aspect of raising capital in general, as well as from the equity crowdfunding perspective. Today's guest is Julie Boga, a lawyer and senior associate at BLG, a national firm in Canada. Please note that the information we discussed during this interview by no means is a piece of legal advice from a lawyer. Your situation is unique, so consult with your own lawyer. Also, information shared in this episode is likely more relevant to the Canadian market, but you can use this episode to get the knowledge so you can ask the right question to your own legal counsel. With this podcast series in episode 105 and 106, so far you have learned the online platform you can use to raise capital through equity crowdfunding in the US and Canada, the key pillars you need to have in place for marketing and business finances, the due diligence processes, and the team you need to have in place. This podcast series will help you as a female founder and CEO to understand the benefit, risk, and process of raising capital through equity crowdfunding. You're listening to Her CEO Journey, the business finance podcast for mission-driven women entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Christina Shahli. If you are new here, a big warm welcome. If we are not connected on LinkedIn, please reach out and say hi because that's where I hang out and share my business finance tips. If you have been listening to this podcast for a while and you are a regular listener, I want you to know I appreciate you. My podcast won't be around without your support. 
This is a free weekly show where my guests and I want to inspire you to balance between mission and profit, to create an impact in this world, and to achieve financial equality through your business for good. Many of you, founder and CEO, during a capital raising process, often focus on forecasting future growth, which means your attention is on your profit and loss and cash flow for the future. The question that I have for you today is this. What about your business balance sheet? This is often the forgotten child who sits in the corner. While profit and loss and cash flow can be the popular kids who get your 1000% attention and love, I want to share the reasons why you should understand the stories behind your balance sheets. Reason number one, it measures the net worth of your business. A balance sheet is one financial statement that carries the data from day one you are in business. And it takes time to clean up a messy balance sheet. So my advice is this, don't wait until you are ready to exit or when your investor is ready for due diligence to understand the story behind your balance sheets. Reason number two, it tells you if your business is solvent. Reason three, it allows you to track the strength in your business. And last but not least, it highlights your business performance against the industry benchmark. Don't wait until you are ready to exit your business to manage your balance sheet. It would be too late. Or don't wait until your investor asks for due diligence. You can read further about this topic of understanding the stories behind your business balance sheet at christinashahli.com. And if you are still unclear on the story your balance sheet tells you and you don't know how to calculate the key ratio to benchmark your business performance against the industry, let's chat. Book a time with me at christinashahli.com forward slash let's chat. I have also created a podcast series specifically for growth stage business to set up the key pillars in business finances. And you can find this podcast series at christinashahli.com forward slash podcast series. Now let's find out Julie's CEO journey. Julie Bogle, welcome to her CEO journey. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Before we dive into the details of equity crowdfunding and the legal surrounding equity crowdfunding, let's start with your journey of becoming a lawyer. I grew up on a farm outside of a small town in southern Alberta. Uh-oh. So I've come farm quite to a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, quite quite some some way, but you know, with with those roots in a farming community, I definitely appreciate where people are coming from with equity crowdfunding and really wanting to surround themselves with a community and a support network. I did my undergrad, my law school, and my MBA all at the University of Calgary. And I moved to Vancouver to start my career as a lawyer, partially due to I wanted to have a diverse range of clients that I worked with in various different industries. But also Vancouver is pretty great in terms of its climate and access to the mountains. When I moved to Vancouver, I started working at a law firm called BLG or Borden Ladner Gervais. It is a national law firm, so there's offices all across the country, and it does both litigation and corporate work. But I found my home in the Securities and Capital Markets Group. Basically, what that means is that I work with public companies. I work with private companies. My expertise would be helping companies raise money, helping companies buy and sell other companies or assets, working through corporate governance matters, and 
kind of just general corporate work for both private and public companies. Is there a specific industry that you are focusing on? No, it really has ranged. You know, when I started, I worked a lot with mining companies. I still have some mining companies as clients, but as things like cryptocurrency and cannabis came into the market, I have those kinds of clients that I work with. I work with a media company or two. I work with like like all over, you name it. Technology obviously is growing. And another key thing that I, I do is as a junior associate, I founded a, a group called Driven by Women through BLG. And so what we initially were founded in the Vancouver market, focusing on supporting women-led businesses and investors. Since then, we've actually expanded and pivoted. So now we help women get into leadership positions full stop. We're not focusing just on women-led entrepreneurs, but rather just women in leadership. And it does have a national scope now. So we partner with groups like BDC or the Women's Enterprise Network. We offer seminars and presentations on things like board governance basics or due diligence readiness. Like we're really there to kind of help women run successful businesses, be community leaders, and just excel moving forward. And I don't know if it's because of that or if it's just because of who I kind of like authentically attract into my bubble. But I do find that most of my clients have women in leadership, whether that's CFOs or CEO roles. Talk about this organization, the women organization that you are basically building. What is your feel there? How popular is equity crowdfunding among the women entrepreneurs? I think we have an issue in Canada and beyond with the number of female founders that we have full stop. And I don't think that it's reflective of whether female founders are are using the crowdfunding opportunity specifically, but whether A, we have enough female founders and B, are they accessing capital or are they trying to shoestring it on their own? I do find that there's more risk aversion, more of a sense of, I need to make this business work on my own and not kind of involve additional investors, not take on debt, not take on equity, keep control of it. But what that ends up doing often, sometimes it's the right decision for sure. But sometimes it means that the growth of the company doesn't happen or it doesn't happen fast enough. And so those companies don't become the as successful as quickly as they could be if they were willing to take the risk and access additional capital. Do you think the issue with women entrepreneurs is just worry that they're not going to be able to pay the debt or to fulfill their promise to investor? I just find with the female investors that I, or the female companies I speak to, is there's just less of an appetite to go big. So if they are doing a raise, they're often doing a raise that will give them a runway for 18 months, as opposed to giving them a runway for three years. Or if they're giving themselves a runway for three years, that's like if everything goes according to this plan and they're just asking for what they need, as opposed to some of their male counterparts asking for more and giving more of a room for error, a margin of error, and they're getting it. It's not to say that there's a one way that's more successful, but I do find that, again, that appetite for risk and that ability to kind of just go big or go home just isn't as integrated with a number of the female founders I've spoken to. So obviously there's lots of different ways to get somewhere, 
And there's lots of different types of people that are running a business. And you don't have to follow a certain mold to be successful. I personally think what's most important is to be authentic. But in being authentic, I think you also need to investigate opportunities and not think that you fit within a certain box until you understand what's outside of the box. From my point of view, when I'm working with women social enterprise businesses, they really focus on their purpose. And what they are missing is that capital. The way women entrepreneurs, from what I have seen and and the women entrepreneurs that I talk to, because they are so focused on their purpose, on their mission. You want to amplify your impact, your social mission, then you really need profitability. And then sometimes you need the capital to grow the business so you can amplify your social impact mission. And the other key thing, again, about going big is that you don't have to do it all on your own. You don't have to be the expert in everything. I work with some fan. So I mentioned this, I work with a couple of media companies. They are fantastic authors and publishers. But when it comes to running a business, they don't have as much experience there. So hire people that can help you run the business. Hire people that can help you with the financials. You don't need to be the expert that does it all. And Far too often, I see small businesses trying to save funds by doing it on their own or not doing it all and just kind of burying their head in the sand like an ostrich. And then it's so much more expensive to fix a problem after the fact than it is to just, again, get informed up front or hire other people up front and do it right from the start. And that all comes down also to projecting what you need, projecting what your runway is, projecting different alternatives, and making sure you ask for that support. And there's lots of different ways that you can structure those those agreements. You might be able to give certain people options so that there's not a tax consequence to them up front, but they can realize the upside in the the company as it grows, you know, or it could be it could be a cash payment. Like there's I guess this is all to say, going back to that principle of there's many ways that you can structure your business to be successful over the long term. Do you want to share what are the different ways companies can raise funds through equity or even debt? From a legal perspective, you can't trade a distribution unless you have a prospectus or a prospectus exemption. So basically what that means is a company can't sell its securities, which would be like its shares, for instance, for cash or for services rendered, unless it qualifies that sale through a prospectus or it relies on a prospectus exemption. So I'm just going to break down some of those terms. So a prospectus is a comprehensive disclosure document. It sets out detailed information about the company and the business. It describes what securities are being issued and those and risks associated with purchasing those securities. It's expensive to put together and it's very comprehensive. And so for private companies, we try to find an exemption from a prospectus to avoid that cost and that time. And the underlying policy, the reason that the rules are in place is because we want to give investors confidence that either they have enough information to make an informed decision to make that investment, or there's a special reason why they don't need that comprehensive document. So. Some common prospectus exemptions would be things like the private issuer exemption, the accredited investor exemption, friends and family, or employees and consultants. 
there's a number of other ones, but for, from a private company's point of view, those are the kind of the key ones that you'll want to focus on. Not all of those exemptions are going to be open to every investor. So for instance, friends and family, you need a really close relationship with a director or executive officer of the company. You can't just be your second cousin twice removed from some employee of the company in order to rely on that exemption. Another one would be like the accredited investor exemption. So that's for high net worth individuals. Mm. And the rationale with that one is if they lose their entire investment, they're going to be okay. Yes. <laughs> so there's not as much need to give them the same kind of level of disclosure document. Another thing that companies really need to appreciate is that you know, you can under the same subscription or the same raise, you can have some people come in and as accredited investors, you can have some people come in as friends and family, you can mix and match. So that's the typical way that most companies raise through what's called a private placement. There's also another exemption called an offering memorandum. And that one allows investors who are not really wealthy and not related closely to the issuer qualify. It's another disclosure document. It's not as extensive as the prospectus, but it still provides some information about the company. But the big downside with that one is that you have continuous disclosure obligations. So in particular, you have to do audited financial statements every year. And for a small company, those audited financial statements might cost 15 grand. They might cost 60 grand. It depends on what they're in, right? It depends on the industry, some industries, especially like cannabis or crypto. Okay, I I get that one. (laughs) The risk is higher too. Exactly. That ongoing cost might not be valuable to the company. So offering memorandums are really great for companies that want to continually raise from the public market. So if you, you know, year over year that you're going to raise a million dollars every year for the growth of your company and you want to do it outside of your friends and family and outside of accredited investors, that's a good option for you or that's an option to explore. But if you're only doing a raise one time and then for eternity, you're always going to have to do audited financial statements, that might not be the best option. Very true. Based on my experience with audit, If you have a mess in your financial statement, you don't have processes within your company, it's a headache, it's stressful. (laughs) I've been on both sides. (laughs) So the auditor is stressed. The person who is working in the uh, finance department also stressed. If you are wearing so many hats, that is not a responsibility or additional work that you want to take on. So then we turn to another exemption, which would be crowdfunding. Again, like the offering memorandum, you can access people that don't have this high net worth. You can access people that you aren't like really close to the company's founders. But the downside with it is that the amount that you can raise is capped at 250000 per raise. And you can do that raise twice a year. There's some exceptions to these rules. But generally speaking, the amount that each investor can provide is limited to $1,500. So it works really well for companies that want to create brand champions, that want to really get into the community and have a really broad investor base, but it's not helpful for companies that need a large sum of funds upfront to do something specifically 
And people have to be willing to have a number. It only works if you have a lot of investors. And that means ongoing commitments to those shareholders moving forward. So it, it can work in some contexts, but a lot of times with the companies that we deal with, when they look at their different options, they don't get enough bang for their buck with the crowdfunding exemptions as they're set out right now. Just to give you a few stats. So as of December 31st, 2019, 62 companies had raised approximately $3.5 million. 62 companies. That's it. Yeah. Only $3.5 million. And then this is Canadian company. Yeah. The average investment size was $734. Talking to front funder, the work that needs to be done for equity crowdfunding, the time commitment, it's huge. It's significant. Well, yeah. And, and, and I mean, the offering document is not as fulsome as a prospectus, yeah. but there still is information that basically like who controls the, and runs the company? What does the company do? Why is it raising money? How much money does it need? What is it offering? So is it offering shares? Is it offering debt? Is it offering convertible uh, securities? Again, it's not as detailed as a prospectus, but it still will take a lot of time for the company to put together. And they really have to be careful when they're putting together that there's no misstatements, there's no misrepresentations because they're going to be liable for that. Yes. You want to make sure that everything that goes into that document can be substantiated, that it's not, oh, we're the best in the industry and we're going to go over and take over the world. (laughs) Like that, that's not very helpful. (laughs) Okay, going back to our discussion though about women entrepreneurs, it's going to be less likely for women entrepreneurs to do that. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) We are way more careful than just say we are on top of the world and then we're going to do A, B, C, D, E in a year. So, yeah. (laughs) So, okay, because I know that with equity crowdfunding inside front funders, some of them that is going on right now, it's above 250000 So when they go above the 250000 they have to have the offering memorandum. And then also they need to have that continue audit every year. Yeah. And there's, there's also some confusion because you can mix and match, right? So maybe they're doing crowdfunding exemption for part of the offering. And then maybe they're also using the accredited investor exemption for some of the purchasers. Or like you said, maybe they're just using the offering memorandum and the the language of crowdfunding kind of is getting blurred between, is it an offering memorandum or is it crowdfunding specifically? And part of, I think the issue with that is that the legal landscape in Canada is patchwork at best. Okay. What does that mean? Basically in 2015, some provinces adopted what we call the startup crowdfunding, like the blanket orders. So some provinces, so BC, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Quebec, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, they adopted rules that allowed startups to raise funds through crowdfunding. But as you can hear, places like Alberta and Ontario were not on that list. So then in 2016, Alberta adopted its own rule. And its rule was a little bit different than everybody else's rule in terms of how much money could be raised And then later in 2016, some other jurisdictions, so now Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, adopted integrated crowdfunding. And so again, it's this, you've got these different models that are being used in different places. So by 2019, the securities regulators, they are proposing a harmonized law. And so that 
harmonized law is called National Instrument 45110. It has not been adopted yet, though. In 2020, it was out for comments. It, all comments were received by July of 2020. Due to COVID, there's been further delays, and we don't really know if or when it will be adopted. So basically, right now, most jurisdictions are operating under these blanket orders, but there's a potential for a harmonized policy moving forward where the rules will change slightly. So that's one thing to be aware of when you're looking online in terms of what is equity crowdfunding. You you have to be careful and and it's worth talking to your lawyer before you kind of go too far to make sure that you understand where you're offering, what the rules are now, keep your eyes open for if additional rules come out because the additional rules will change things like what amount can you raise? It will go from 250,000 to I believe a million. Uh, And that million dollars might be a game changer in terms of how many people actually use this. So what are the common mistakes that business owners doing when they are raising capital through equity crowdfunding specifically? I would say the biggest issue I've seen is not understanding their options up front. So making a decision before they really understand the implications of that decision. So to give you one example, Mm -hmm. if you proceed with equity crowdfunding, which like I said, it can be great if you're looking for brand champions, if you want a broad-based community support, it can can really make sense. But moving forward, you are now going to have, your cap table is going to be huge. You're going to have a ton of shareholders with a very small interest in your company. You have to think forward to your exit strategy. If you're planning to sell your company to another company, you're going to have to get approval from all those shareholders to sell their shares to that larger company. You you can't just unilaterally do that anymore. And there's ways you can structure your deal. Like perhaps you have a voting trust agreement put in place where they transfer the voting rights to one kind of trustee to vote on their behalf, which can get you around most of the issues. But again, that needs to be like reviewed by your legal team. You need to make sure that your shareholders are comfortable with with basically giving away their voting rights. And it might not apply in certain circumstances where it's important to have minority shareholders' views. And so, so like I said, exit strategies are going to be something to consider. Why don't we go back a little bit about capitalization table or cap table that you mentioned earlier? Can you elaborate a little bit for my audience who doesn't understand what it is and then why they should care? So a cap table is basically, from a legal perspective, it is not a document that we keep our fingers on. From a legal perspective, what we really care about is something called your central securities register. So that is a list. It it is like the legal evidence of who owns your company and how they own it. So we typically look at it specifically for any share issuances that have happened because it shows the legal ownership of the company. The cap table is what most founders focus on because that kind of breaks down how much money have different people put in and they focus on it because they often look at what your pre-value versus your post-money valuations look like. And why that's important to look at moving forward is if you're going to have both your CSR, your central securities register, and your cap table, you're just going to have 
a large number of people on that table moving forward that you have to stay engaged with because these are now your partial owners of your company. And even if they've given their voting rights away, they still partially own your company. If you have profits that you want to distribute out, they all have a percentage interest in those distributions provided on how you set up your share class and and other things. I just think that people need to understand that they're going to have more owners to track. Absolutely. And so basically, when a company is going to make a major decision, like selling their business, merger and acquisition, or if later on they want to go into initial public offering with the TSX or in the U.S., this is are the list of people that they need to speak to, to communicate about their plan, because they need to know if this is going to be something beneficial for them because they are the shareholder of the company or is something that is not beneficial for them. Even if they want to dissolve, even if they want to just hang their hat up and wind up the company, they're still going to have to deal with all those shareholders. And if, again, like I said, if they're going to distribute any, distribute any profits, you got to think about all those shareholders. So a lot of private companies stay private because they like to maintain control with a very small group of people. And then when the company comes quite successful, there's various different ways you can get funds out of the company to those founders. It's just harder to get those funds out to specific individuals when you've got a a large cap table. And again, you can look at it in structuring it different ways. You know, maybe the shareholders that come in are under one class of shares, and maybe there's a different class of shares for founders, and maybe the distribution rights or the voting rights are different for those different shareholders. But those are all things you have to think about. And so when people are raising $250,000, they might not want to spend the legal costs and the legal time on thinking through how to structure all of these different avenues. It, it just might not be bang for their buck. Another key thing, I mean, we've mentioned Fund Funder. There's a number of funding platforms. Some of them are very industry specific. Some of them are very broad across Canada. Fund Funder is definitely a leader in this space for sure. Whether you want to do an offering memorandum, equity crowdfunding, or otherwise, and you want to look at these funding portals, check out your different options and try to talk to some companies that have actually gone through the process with that funding portal. Hear what their pain points are. Hear what went really well for them. Again, go in with your eyes open so that you can kind of help alleviate any issues that might come up. You also mentioned about when a business or a venture is doing their crowdfunding campaign, they need to be careful. This is a bit of a gray area (laughs) in the sense that under some of the rules, it's one that's in existence right now. If they are using that one, no marketing is permitted, but you can include term sheets, videos, information on the funding portal. So basically, Everything can go on the funding portal, but you can't market outside of the funding portal. So that's something, again, to keep in mind and to to keep track of, okay, what rules am I actually relying on? Which jurisdictions am I offering in? Am I using the blanket orders? And again, your lawyer can help navigate through this. You really want to make sure that any marketing campaign, you don't have anything that's misleading. You want to make sure that everything can be supported and substantiated. You want to make sure that you really understand 
that the reason the funding portal is so important is because that funding portal is going to have access to different potential investors. Because if somebody's really interested in the cannabis space, there are cannabis-specific funding platforms, and they may check that platform more regularly than a more general funding platform. Other funding platforms like FrontFunder might have a, a larger subscription base or not even subscription, just like people that monitor the activities that are going on there. So you might be able to get more people interested in your company through FrontFunder. And maybe FrontFunder, maybe using a platform like that would be helpful in the sense of even just brand awareness and just people seeing your company for the first time, even if they're not investing in you, just even you know having that unconscious awareness might be helpful. So yeah, I I think in terms of your marketing campaign, really understand your funding portal and what opportunities might exist through that. And if you're looking beyond equity crowdfunding, most funding portals won't guarantee investors. So, you know, if you're using the accredited investor or offering memorandum, like it's still going to be your job to find investors that then will invest through the funding portal. Do you find that a lot of ventures that want to do capital raise or equity crowdfunding, do they come to a, a lawyer too late? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Again, especially small companies because they're trying to save money and they're not saving money. They think that if I if I just get everything all dealt with up front, then the lawyer can just paper it and we'll be good to go. But the lawyer is probably going to have experience from other deals and they're going to have questions for you. And those questions need to be flushed out. And it might be a lot easier to flush those questions out up front. And you might even come to a different conclusion if you ask the question or if you ask your lawyer and accountant up front. What question do they need to ask the lawyers to know that this is the right lawyer for this type of transaction? It's worth talking to two or three different lawyers to kind of get a feel for what their experience is in this area. Because I know that everybody targets in on the cost, but you want to make sure that you're getting value rather than focusing just on the bottom line. Because if a lawyer charges, you know, the the Toronto rates are quite high. So if a lawyer charges, let's say, $600 an hour, but it's only going to take them two hours to do the job, it's going to be a lot better and you're going to get a better quality product than a lawyer that might charge $300, but take 10 hours to do it. So just you, you really want to make sure that they have experience. The other thing is that you you don't want to be at the bottom of their pile. Like if you have a question, it is completely reasonable to get a response within 24 hours, other than on the weekends or holidays, right? <laughs> yeah, obviously. 24 hours. And even if the response is, yep, got it, looking into it, we'll I get know. back to you. That's totally appropriate, right? I Depending know. on the nature of the question. You don't want to, as the client, be following up with your lawyer a week later being, where's this at? You want to get a sense of that. Will they be responsive? Will they give you value? Do they have experience? A lawyer is not a broker. They're not going to introduce you to investors. Like You don't want to be looking at them as a person that's going to be your network. But they might have certain opportunities, like they might have events or seminars that can help you improve your knowledge base so that you can run your business better. So you can look around on their website, see what other offerings they have, because I think there's additional value to lawyers beyond just the specific questions that you as a client ask that you just need to keep in mind. Now, in terms of legal fees, if you work with a startup, 
is there like a deferral on their legal fees until they successful in raising the capital? It really depends on the firm and it depends on the market because again, the fees in Vancouver are very different than the fees in Toronto. The deferrals are common in the startup space. With my practice, I have agreed to not charge for work done in connection with an offering until the offering completes. Because I think that's fair. You know, I'm helping you get money in. I'm not going to expect to be paid until that money is in. I don't want to say it's common. It's really depend on the expert if they want to take deferral until you are successful in raising capital. But it doesn't hurt to ask, honestly. And if they say no, then it's a no. You can find other qualified lawyers that has the same experience that are willing to take that chance. It's kind of like the expert also have to believe in your business. If I'm working with a startup who is raising capital, I would want to know if I can trust the founder. It's about relationship as well. So Julie, what type of businesses should reach out to you for advice? I work with a wide range of people. I work with different industries. I work with private and public companies. And I am supported by a number of other people at BLG, both partners and associates and students. So really anyone can reach out to me. And if I'm not the right person for you, I can get you connected to the right person because we want to ensure that we are providing high quality value advice at the end of the day. And because we have a national firm, we are able to leverage that and you know, use lower billing rates in some jurisdictions when appropriate. And we, we can really make sure that we structure our working relationship in a way that meets everybody's needs. And where can they find you, Julie? The best way would be to email me. My email is jbogle at blg. That's J-B as in Bob, O-G-L-E at blg.com. You can check out our website. It's blg.com. I'm on LinkedIn. And specifically, if you're interested in Driven by Women, that is the initiative that I founded. It is on the BLG website as well. Yeah, we are. We're excited to support more women-led businesses and get more women into leadership positions. Julie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And that's bring us to the end of another show. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Her CEO Journey, the business finance podcast for women entrepreneurs. If you want to create a proactive financial plan and process for your business so you are ready to weather the financial storm over the next few months, let's chat and see what's possible for you. Book in a time to speak with me at christinashahli.com forward slash let's chat.